Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of The Picklist. We're back and if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you will have noticed that the podcast intro has become quite a bit less northern all of a sudden. Yes, unfortunately, Laura won't be joining me for this season of The Picklist. If you know Laura, you know that she has been incredibly busy recently. Her consultancy business, Laven Park, and her involvement in Meet Businesswomen and Global Meat Alliance have all taken off, which means she just doesn't have the time to commit to a weekly podcast at the moment. So she stepped back from hosting duties, which means you are left with me. But I do have some really exciting plans for the pick list, which I will tell you about in a moment. But I did want to take the opportunity to say a massive thank you to Laura for being such a great co-host for these past three seasons and for pushing me to do this podcast in the first place. I really hope that I will do you proud. Now, in terms of what's next for the pick list, I have taken the opportunity to review the format and make a few tweaks because, of course, the dynamic does change if you're moving from two hosts to just one host. So I've primarily cut back on the articles that we're discussing just to give my guests a little bit more scope to talk about themselves, their personal story, how they got involved in food, and just give us more of a sense and context around what they're working on at the moment. I also have some really great guests lined up for this season already, which I'm super excited about. And I really hope you will enjoy this new, slightly tweaked format of the pick list and that you will continue listening and supporting the podcast. Incidentally, the best way to support the pick list is to leave a five-star rating and review on whichever platform you are listening. So with all of this out of the way, let me tell you a little bit about my guest this week. I'm joined on the podcast this week by Jake Carrier, the founder and managing director of Food Attraction. Food Attraction is a very interesting business. They are a manufacturer based in Leicester with a track record of more than 20 years of producing products for a whole range of food service companies, restaurants, hotels, airlines, railway operators, retailers... But they're also a challenger brand because they own the Jake and Nains brand, which is a relatively new brand. And they are, in fact, part of the Sainsbury's Future Brands program with that brand. So Jake has a really interesting vantage point on the food industry, a really interesting perspective to share. He's also just someone who tells it like it is. So you'll hear him talk about the challenges around cost inflation and recruitment, coping with the pandemic, but also why he decided to step up investment in his brand just as COVID started to hit and why that proved to be a very good decision indeed. 
and also some of the opportunities he sees in food to go after COVID. But first, let me bring you up to speed on what's been happening in food and grocery this week. Co-op has announced a partnership with Amazon to sell 3,000 grocery products via Amazon.co.uk. Amazon has also teamed up with Deliveroo to offer free takeaway and grocery delivery to Amazon Prime members. On the packaging front, Tesco has launched refillable aisles in partnership with Loop in 10 stores following a year-long online trial. And Morrison's has announced a zero-waste trial in six Scottish stores in partnership with Nestle. Turning to Christmas, Waitrose and John Lewis have announced plans to recruit an extra 7,000 temporary roles ahead of the festive season. That's 2,000 more roles than last year. And Sainsbury's has said all its stores will stay closed on Boxing Day this year as a thank you to staff. On the product side, Aldi has teamed up with Tony's Chocolonely to launch an own-label range of ethical chocolates called Choco Changer. And Nomad, the owner of Birdseye, has struck an eye-catching partnership with a startup that specialises in lab-grown seafood. The latest canter figures were also out this week. Take-home grocery sales remain considerably higher than before COVID, but we're continuing to see a move away from some of the key pandemic shopping trends, including the big weekly shop. Top-up shopping is on the rise again, and the average online basket is now £17 smaller than during the first lockdown. Also interesting, sales of chilled ready meals were up 11% over the past month as consumers are getting busier again, they have less time for scratch cooking, and convenience moves up the agenda once more. Finally, of course, the supply chain crisis continued to make headlines. The big news this week was the government has appointed Michael Gove to head up a new task force to secure the food supply chain and, quote-unquote, save Christmas. The government is also delaying the introduction of post-Brexit checks on food imports from the EU. Those were supposed to come in on the 1st of October, but they have now been delayed until January, and this is the second time those changes have been postponed. Those are the key headlines this week. You can find links to all the stories in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Jake Carrier. Jake, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. My absolute pleasure. Now, you are founder and managing director of Food Attraction. Tell us a little bit about Food Attraction. What kind of business is it? What do you guys do? Oh, it's a mad business. So we are food manufacturers based in Leicester. Uh, We've got three BRC AA grade factories all next door to each other. Um, We're a family business. There's myself, my brother and my wife that run the business. Um, I'm the MD. My wife is the money woman. Um, at work and at home, if I'm honest with you. Uh, my brother is operations director. We have about 90-odd staff in there. Um, but we're quite artisan in that we manufacture food for uh, some of the supermarket chains. Uh, background is very much food service. So I've worked with a lot of the big restaurant chains developing food for high street brands. So I would think somewhere along the line, you've eaten something that's come out of our factories. And you have a branded side to the business as well, the Jake and Names brand. Tell us a little bit about that brand. What we set out to do is 
Uh, we had a lot of experience in restaurant manufacturing. So we produce food that when you go into a high street restaurant, the restaurant passes off as if it's been made in the restaurant. So the standards of what we were producing were always really, really high. Um, and what really sparked the brand off was, and I, think it, and I think this is important for where we are today in society, in that you had all these high street specialist food to go operators, people like Leon Pret and, and things like that out there that always had queues at lunchtime. Yet when you went to a sandwich counter at Tesco's or Sainsbury's or somewhere or co-op or wherever, there was no queues. Um, you then, we had this huge surge of street food festivals. Um, and you, know, you go into London and there are, there are street food markets all over the place. And again, you had queues and the prices that these guys were charging were insane, but it was damn good food. So we thought, well, with our restaurant experience, why can't we replicate what these guys are doing? Use the, back, uh, the BRC AA grade accreditation that we have as our anchor but actually then produce that for retail. Um, so that's what we did. And rather than sort of re-come up with new flavors of sandwiches or new flavors of wraps, we actually came out with a new concept, which was the Nanster, uh, which is a filled naan bread. It took us two years to develop the bread to make sure that it's microwavable. Uh, it's soft and fluffy. It doesn't go chewy, rubbery, or hard. Uh, and then we filled it with chicken tikka masala. Who doesn't like chicken tikka masala? Um, Quite. <laughs> chickpea curry, which is actually my favorite. Salty chicken. Uh, we've just done an insanely hot one called a Naga Chili Nanster, um, which we did for marketing purposes and stuff. But you know what? It blew up. So Sainsbury's listed it. Um, so, so, yeah, and then we do burritos, we do samosas, uh, and then at the lunch show coming up in, next week. Um, yeah, a week today we'll be panicking have we got everything on the stand properly. But, yeah, in a week's time, uh, we're there showing some of our innovation. Now, obviously, in terms of the sort of sectors that you supply into, and you've already talked about, there's obviously the food-to-go side of things. There's ready meals, there's airlines, there's restaurants. So quite a few sectors that have had some interesting times recently. I'm really interested to understand how you steered the business through that. If you take us back to the height of the pandemic, the height of lockdown, where did you see the biggest impact in your business? And what did you do in response? How did you change your strategy? I'm still trying to get my head around you using the word interesting. That's not a word I would use. But bear, bearing in mind, this is before nine o'clock watershed. <laughs> Be careful about the words that I use. So no. So look, we, we, we've been through crap times before. You know, we've been through various recessions um, and, and really crap times. I couldn't have anticipated what was about to happen. You know, to talk now about the country going into lockdown to us seems the norm. Back then, I would put that along the same lines as aliens landing in the car park and, and little green men running around sort of thing. You know, to put the world into lockdown the way that it went into was just crazy. But we decided at that point was to increase the investment in marketing in the Jake and Lane brand, which was an innovative, disruptive brand um, out there, and then see what happens with the rest of it, knowing that retail would still carry on. Um, it, was a, it was a scary gamble because there were a few people in that boardroom, uh, my wife included, saying, no, 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 we need to batten down the hatches, preserve as much money as we can to ride through it. But the entrepreneurial side of it, the, the risk taker, I guess, side of it said, no, 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 we need to force ahead because if you can become established as a brand in a really difficult time like COVID, then actually you're a brand for life. Um, and we did that. And actually then we went into lockdown and we lost all of our airline business, all of our railway business, all of our food service business. We lost some of our contract manufacturing. And it wasn't that it whittled down, it just stopped dead. But what actually happened, we had probably a month of really scary period. 
uh, in there. But actually, everything then went the opposite way, and we actually grew the business. So we actually ended up the year up, even having lost such a significant chunk of the business because of the investment we put into Jake and Lane's uh, in there. And you know, the, the retail sector was still growing, um, and we, even though our sector, uh, food to go, I think dropped by about forty six percent. We not only recovered the business that we lost. We not only uh, bucked the trend, I think we showed uh, a decent, a, a very, very good growth actually in that sector, um, but we managed to grow the business as a whole. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story, I think, because as you say, it required you to make quite a tricky judgment call in a really, really difficult situation. And I wonder to what extent your personal story of how you ended up going into the food industry in the first instance, perhaps plays a role here in how you approach some of those challenges, because you've got a really interesting story. You did something totally different initially. (laughs) You worked as an estate agent, and then you sort of ended up in food. And I, it, it sounds like took quite a few entrepreneurs risks along the way as well. Tell us a bit about how you went from selling houses to manufacturing foods. I think if you go right back to the beginning, I'm an immigrant. I came in from East Africa back in 1970. Uh, That's where I was born. And and I think by our very nature, we were always entrepreneurial, uh, hugely entrepreneurial. But I knew I always wanted to work for myself. Um, I've never been afraid of hard work at all. Um, And mum is an amazing cook. So what used to happen, and I used to run a pretty big office just outside London um, in there, whenever I came home to visit mum in Leicester, she'd pack some food, I'd take it back with me, and as soon as I opened my lunchbox in my office, all my staff would devour everything that was in there because it tasted so good. So then people were saying to me, Jake, if you're going home this weekend, I've got a dinner party coming up, could you, could you make me you know, 20 samosas or whatever? Which mum found really endearing initially. I think that lasted about three weeks, and then it was no son. I don't want you coming home anymore now because I haven't got time to make samosas and bhajis and everything else. So then Leicester is the epicenter, I think, of good Indian food. So I then started buying from local delis, selling to my friends, and I said to my wife, "This is ridiculous. I can't be selling food out of the back of my car like this." Um, but I do think that there's a that, that there's a missed opportunity here. I think we need to do something. So we took over a little factory unit um, in Leicester, and we started manufacturing food from there. Then my brother went for a job interview at, um, at one of the big Knightsbridge stores, not the biggest, but the second biggest in there. And he went, to, uh, went for an interview on a fromagerie counter. And whilst he was there, he, asked, uh, he was asked, rather, have you ever worked in food before? My brother said, yeah, yeah. my brother makes canapes and this sort of stuff uh, in there. And I have worked in, in his little factory unit before. So my unit at that time was probably just a bit bigger than a double garage um, in there. And that's where my wife and I were making the food. And so this, this buyer said, oh, we're looking for that sort of thing. Can you get your brother to give me a call? We'd be dead interested. Brother rang me from outside and said, you never guess what. This is what the, this is what the buyers just said. <laughs> like, they're not going to want to buy from us in Leicester. So anyway, I picked up the phone. Uh, there must have been something good that I said that he liked. And he invited me down, uh, which is an experience in itself, dri- you know, driving into Knightsbridge. And they bought four items put on their deli counter. So at that point, Julia, I sat down and thought, well, hang on a minute. Why am I limiting myself to dealing with caterers and people like that here in Leicester? Why am I not going further afield? So I picked up the phone to the other one on Oxford Street, the the other one in Knightsbridge, uh, and the one in Piccadilly as well. And I spoke to all of them, and we actually got product in all four. 
Um, and that was really how the business was born. So it's those sorts of things, I think, that shape you as a business person going forward. With the underlying, I need to take risks to be able to progress the business forward. But then you're always being sort of, you have this voice of reason in your head saying, well, you've got to be careful. You've got to make sure you, you know, cover your back over it. So, and I think that's what got us through, through COVID this time around. I'm interested in actually what you were saying about, I guess, that historical perspective, because as you say, you know, you've you've been going for about 20 years, right? It must be. Um, yes. So so you've lived through 9-11, the financial crash after that, the horse meat scandal. I mean, there's obviously been a lot happening around food as well. How do those crises compare with what the industry is going through right now with COVID, with Brexit, with labour shortages, with the supply chain crisis? The way I would describe the current climate, it's a shitstorm on a sunny day because there are some phenomenal opportunities out there. You know, I think when you look at what these on-demand services are doing, when you look at what um, the direct-to-consumer services did out there, and you look at the way that people are having to rethink they, the way they do industry, uh, or, or sorry, the way they sell and the way they supply. I think it's I think it's allowing disruptive brands like us to really get in there because we can move really quickly. You know, I can make a decision today, and tomorrow we can put it into effect in the business. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really good opportunity. It's so exciting each day to go in there, to look at development, look at opportunities, and then that's all beleaguered by the fact that you've got these logistical issues and things like that which are an absolute nightmare so there are parts of me that can't wait to get to work and there are other parts of me like oh my god what am I going to face today and I think you said a little earlier that obviously at the height of lockdown food to go was a really tough sector and I think you said sales sort of dropped by 46 percent in 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 that category what are you see what are you seeing at the moment in terms of the health of that sector what's happened in terms of sales recovering I think it's it's definitely coming back, um, but we were we were fortunate that through the branding and even down to the fact that this month we launched our first TV advert um, out there. So we've hit now uh, regions of the UK. Uh, we just count the numbers, we then and, and then sort of you know, spread that to the rest of the UK. Um, it's coming back, but I think people's eating habits have changed. I think I went to an IGD conference a while ago. And they were saying that there are now seven day parts to eating. You know, before it was breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But now people have got different habits. Uh, you know, people go to the gym after work, or they might go to the cinema, or they want a late supper. So actually, hot food to go that can be heated later or taken home and eaten, heated and eaten, actually, I think works really, really well. And if you can offer something that gives that variety of products in there as well, you know, the chicken tikka filled naan or a Mexican chicken burrito or something like that, people are getting a bit more flavor out of it. So that's where I see it's growing the most. And are you finding that retailers, that the buyers now have the headspace again as well to talk about new innovation, to talk about new concepts? Because obviously there was a time again during COVID where you just heard that it was incredibly difficult even to get that bandwidth from buyers because they were just, you know, dealing with uh, firefighting, essentially. Is that appetite there? Are they looking for exciting new concepts? I think some of them are. Um, we deal with Sainsbury's and Sainsbury's have a program called Future Brands and we're part of the Future Brands program and you know what I think they've been absolutely amazing and phenomenal in in helping drive driving innovation through food and and it's paid off for them um, in there I'm I'm hoping I can say that but it it has paid off for them 
and it's helped propel our brand um, within there as well. And by the same token, we've exclusively invested in what we're doing within Sainsbury's. But you know what? There, there needs to be more of that. You know, there are, you know, you again, I'm sorry to go back to the lunch show, but you'll go there, you'll walk around, and there'll be so many innovative brands. Now, don't get me wrong, some of those brands don't have the ability to scale up to go into large-scale retail the way that perhaps we did. Um, uh, some of them are, and they're desperate to do that. And if they can get the support of a big retailer to go out there and help them launch that brand in there, then I would shop at a particular retailer if I know I can buy a particular product just from there. And I think that's so key to where we're at at the moment. I don't think convenience has quite latched onto that. I know they've got less floor space, I think they're missing a big trick. You know, these innovative brands almost make them like a deli-type business. And actually, people then see that as a destination shop rather than just a convenience shop. And to be honest, allow those disruptive brands to communicate to the community that my product is available here. Go buy it. Because we are doing work on social media. You don't need to see what Little Moons did with Tesco's not so long ago and how that went viral and what that actually did to them. Yeah, and that is the holy grail. I'm trying to find something viral, and they're getting me dancing on TikTok, Julia. It's not a good look. <laughs> really isn't. Oh well, we but need to. You need to give us the link. That that sounds like something we need to be sharing with the wider world. Yeah, I think this is something I'm going to regret having said now. But yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing some crazy dances, my brother and I, over it, and and apparently it helps sell food. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Now, we are already talking about social media and Gen Z, but you are really interested in Gen Z more generally and in how we can create workplaces that are perhaps a little bit more welcoming to Gen Z. Why is this such an area of interest for you? Look, Generation Z, I think, is, is, is such a formidable force. Yeah, when I started business, I used to wear a suit, shirt and tie when I used to go into work. And then over a period, we got rid of the tie. And I thought, wow, that was so vogue, getting rid of the tie and going in and putting shirts sort of thing. Only, only one button down. I didn't go down the two buttons, only the one button. Um, and then we went from there to wearing chinos and shirts. And then from there, we went to wearing polo tops and chinos. I was like, wow, I'm a real rebel here. <laughs> now we actually have a Jake and Names uniform, which is T-shirts, uh, polo tops, uh, hoodies, jeans, uh, black or blue, and something like Timberlands or Vans or Converse or something like that in there. Because it ain't about what you're wearing, it's about how comfortable you feel in what you're doing. And then we started looking at Generation Z, and <clears throat> they're, they're all into the hustle. They like um, being a lot more light-footed with regards to what they're doing. They're very clever, they're very tech-savvy, um, but they don't conform to my old way of working, which was a Monday to Friday, you know, nine till six o'clock day sort of thing. You know, I have Generation Z in the business. They have no problem clocking off at three o'clock. They'll go to the gym. But then I know that they'll turn on their laptop at seven o'clock in the evening and work through till 10, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And that's something that we need to embrace. So this goes back to that sunny day part that I mentioned that, look, things have moved. And the dinosaurs in all of this, the people that are slow to embrace it, are the ones that are going to get left behind. Now, I do want to quiz you a little bit on some of the articles that you have picked for us to discuss, because obviously we want to get a little bit of a sense of some of the big trends, news and developments that you're keeping an eye on. And we've already touched on quite a few of them, but I think we'll have an opportunity to go into a little bit more detail as well. Before we dive into your first article, just give me a sense of what are you like as a reader? What publications do you tend to read to stay up to date on what's happening in the industry? Roaster is absolutely my go-to. 
Um, it lands on my desk each week, and I very guiltily sit down and read the grocer um, in there because I feel I should be doing something. Um, but no, for me, it's, it's always got to be the grocer. And then I get other little publications like food manufacturer that comes through uh, that, that I pick up on. But what generally tends to happen is the grocer will have an article in it, and then I'll go online just to expand that article a little bit further. Um, but I would say that that's where it would be. Um, and dare I say it, I'm an avid listener of Radio 4 as well. And speaking of the grocer, that is your first article pick. And you picked an article with the headline, Tsunami of Price Hikes as Suppliers Pass on Costs. And the headline really tells you what that article is about. It's suppliers in their negotiations with retailers, or at least some suppliers at least, now managing to pass on some of the increased costs that we're seeing in the supply chain. Um, with the expectation that a lot of those costs will then be passed on to consumers in the form of higher feed prices. And before I ask you about your your take on this, I think it's probably worth saying for context, we've just had the latest ONS figures out this week as well, haven't we? Which showed inflation making its biggest jump on record in August food and drink being one of the key drivers in that. And there's a little bit of distortion there because we had Eat Out to Help Out last year. So some of the, the comparatives are, are possibly a little bit distorted, but still clearly on the basis of this article, lots more to come in terms of higher prices. And I think that's the key. I think there's a lot more to come. Yeah. You know, um, that that um, shitstorm that I mentioned is absolutely that. And Look, if I'm making a product, there are probably 20 to 30 ingredients in that product. And if I'm getting 2 or 3 or 4% price increases on each of those ingredients, and then I've got a packaging increase, then I've got a transport. I mean, transport's just hysterical at the moment. Trying to get product from A to B is nigh on impossible at the moment. Um, and I think there are so many restrictions being put on transport as well now um, that it's becoming more and more expensive. And then recruitment, you know, I've never had ever in my working time where we've struggled to recruit. You know, we would normally get 10 to 15 people knocking on the door a day, uh, or no, a week, sort of thing, sorry, not a day, um, looking for work. We have zero. Um, and, and not only that, we're actually losing people. And in fact, actually, the production manager yesterday sent a note out saying, guys, I'm really, really struggling on the line. Can I get the management team in to help? And so when you look at all these things, Individually, they have an effect. You put the compound effect of that together, and it's huge. So one of the other consequences that is going to come from all of this is where businesses are not able to pass that price increase on, or where businesses have perhaps buried their head in the sand, they're going to go to the wall. And as they go to the wall, you're going to get a more refined market. So actually, that competition aspect starts to walk away. And people start to be able to demand the prices that, that they want to demand. So that's another unintended consequence that I think we're going to face further down the line um, as brands start to sort of close down. And in a business like yours, you've already talked about recruitment, but what are the big pressure points in terms of costs for you guys right now? Where have you seen the craziest hikes? Commodities. So we've seen chicken price hikes, we've seen rice hikes, we've seen tomato hikes. Um, and where we've been, where we thought we were savvy and clever and actually um, and actually um, forward bought and contracted, 
even those now are having to be discussed now because the price hikes, and we're talking in some respects 20 to 30 percent. Wow. Uh, we've, had, we've had two price increases on our transport, and each one was small, three, three and a half odd percent. But actually, they've put two in now. So actually, when you look at it from that point of view, it's a lot higher than you think. And that, that transport issue is across the board um, in there. And you, you've got to bear in mind that that's the price increase for me to get it from my factory into the store. But actually, my suppliers have also faced the same price increases as well. They've already passed that price increase on to me. So you've got that. So, yeah, I think we're in for a rough ride um, in there. And I think this is, although we talk about tsunami right now, I think this is just the beginning of it. I think there's, I think there's much more to come. And, and on that point, actually, because I guess the tenor of that particular article essentially is that there are suppliers that are now managing to get some of those price increases through. I think there was someone quoted in there talking about 5% roughly being negotiated over the summer. Does that tally with your experience of, of talking to retailers? Um, we haven't started ours yet. Um, what we have been doing in the business uh, really, really hard over the past two years or so now is trying to mitigate price increases by um, automating um, and by uh, contracting ingredients and things like that. So we've staved off a lot of these price increases, but all of that is now being washed away. So I think we will be going down that route fairly, fairly soon. And we'll stay with sort of supply chain issues um, with the article that I have chosen, because I think it touches on a lot of related issues, actually. It's a little bit of, an, of a weird one on the face of it, because it's actually about algebra. I really have no business talking about algebra, as any of my former maths teachers will, will tell you. But there is a grocery link here. It's a really interesting piece from The Guardian that looks at the maths working to solve the UK's supply chain crisis. Um, it's a piece written by Michael Brooks, who's a science writer, and he's just published a new book on how mathematics create civilization. But the angle he's taking for this particular article is looking at how algebra, how maths, helps keep supply chains moving, the maths of logistics, as he puts it. And there's loads of quite interesting detail in there. They've got some people from Mercado being quoted. Um, they've got a logistics software provider working with the likes of P&G and Unilever, giving a bit of an insight in how this works. The reason I wanted to talk to you about this article, A, was because I wanted an excuse to talk to you about the supply chain crisis, but also because I really appreciated that this took a slightly different angle on this, because there's so much coverage around the problems. You know, we're obviously all seeing at the moment what happens when the supply chain doesn't quite work, when there are shortages and gaps on shelf. I thought it was quite interesting, actually, to have an exploration of just the sheer complexity, the amazing complexity of these supply chains and the work that is involved to make all of this happen. There's this awesome example in there about the um, Ocado optimization algorithm, which needs to consider how to pack items in the smallest possible number of bags, the best path to be traveled by a robot in a warehouse or by the personal shopper if it's a pick from store, the time slot that's been booked by the customer, the capacity of the van, the environmental impact, I mean, so many different factors. Um, I think in a way, sometimes we just 
we take logistics for granted, don't we? It's sort of happening in the background. And I think articles like these actually are quite helpful in spelling out the amazing work that's required to make these deliveries happen and, and to make these supply chains work. What did you make of it? And are you, do you think that some of this coverage can help us appreciate logistics a little bit more? I think, I think you know what, data is a phenomenal commodity. Um, and I think if you can track data, and I, and I think there is some really, 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 really good interest in data, it just happens to cost a fortune to buy. Um, but, if you, but if you analyze the data and you track people's spending habits, buying habits, eating habits, and all sorts of stuff like that, um, then I think you start to build a much more reliable, robust business plan going forward. That said, an entrepreneur would never look at it that way. An entrepreneur would do it by feel um, in there. And um, it, it, we were talking earlier on in the business about, about some of the tough times that we've had. And, um, and um, we're putting in a lot more financial systems within the business. And one of the guys said to me, well, how did you monitor before what it was like, how your business was performing? And I said, well, actually, it, it, to me, it really depended on whether my wife slept at night or not. If she didn't sleep and she was tossing and turning, I knew we were in, we were in trouble. But if she was sleeping sound at night and snoring, I was happy because I knew that we were doing really well. But that, that to me is how an entrepreneur would work a business. But actually, P&G and, and Amazon and people like that and Ocado have bigger pockets than we do and are able to analyze the data and actually make much more comprehensive um, decisions um, that are much more factually based. Um, and if we can get access to that data, so within Sainsbury's, we see some of the data that comes through and that helps us make decisions over what we're doing. So with regards to algebra, I think that's great as long as there's a formula for where we're at at the moment. But for what we've just gone through with COVID and things like that, there is no formula in there. We've, ne we've never been through that sort of situation before. So I think to a certain extent, we can apply algebra and we can look at, look at the data on it but even that, they're literally painting by numbers over it because it, 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 it's still evolving, it's still growing. And then you throw a spanner in that, like a little moon's concept, where you throw this viral campaign through in on it, and it blows it all out the water. Um, but I guess it, it's good to have an underlying line that you can then look from. How do you find striking the balance between wanting to be a little bit more data-driven and perhaps using some more of, of that algebra with the instincts that make an entrepreneur who you are? I got a great answer for that. So I think Richard Branson was the one that said, I think, I can't, I can't I'm not quoting him directly, um, but it was to succeed, you have to surround yourself with people that, that, that are better than you in there. So look, I'm, I'm entrepreneurial, I'll take risks, I'll create risks. Um, I know it's not too moron, but what we do. Um, I'm passionate about the food that we do and the relationships that we form doesn't necessarily tie hand in hand with, with, with monitoring data or the financials and things like that. So I've brought people into the business that can do all that for me. Um, and we have a good, respectful debate, conversation. Sometimes it gets pulled one way, sometimes it gets pulled the other way. But you have other people that can do that for you. And I think that's so critical for a business to not outsource it, but to bring other people in that can bring that different dimension to your business. Now, the final article takes us onto a topic that I know you're really passionate about, and you've already talked about it in various points. You've mentioned that you're part of the Future Brands cohort at Sainsbury's as well. But you've picked a piece from Progressive Grocer about GoPuff, which is the US food delivery service. And they've just launched a new initiative called Put Me On, 
which is essentially an accelerator for small brands and entrepreneurs, particularly from underrepresented groups. And the idea is that they're being put through this accelerator program and receive support, mentoring, help to grow their business, and also exposure and listings through GoPuff. It's a US initiative, of course, but I think it touches on issues that are really relevant in a UK context as well. And you were very, very keen to talk about the kind of support that you think is necessary to help entrepreneurs, to help challenger brands launch NPD and succeed in retail. Why is this an issue that's so close to your heart? And what kind of support do you think works? I think it's partially support and it's partially barriers. Um, I think there are a lot of barriers. I think some of the bigger supermarkets um, won't take on challenger brands because uh, it's too risky for them. Um, I think that's wrong. I think because pretty much every brand at some point that's in there now was a challenger brand at one time. Um, uh, And then you just become a generic supermarket. That's wrong. Um, I think within other areas, there are lots of barriers put in place for financial barriers. and I think, you know, as a challenger brand that's investing every penny they've got back in marketing and making uh, people aware of what their product is, they haven't got the funding to be able to put that, put that investment in. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's those. I think from a support point of view, to help these challenger brands understand what selling into retail is all about, because I think they have these fantastical ideas of, of what it's going to be like to sell to a big retailer. But actually, when they get involved in the the, the information that's required, the volumes that could be required and things like that, they can get caught short. Um, but also understanding about, well, it's going to cost this much to advertise this or this much to advertise that. And it's just having deep enough pockets to do that. But I honestly think that, you know what, these, these brands, these, these, these challenger brands that are going out there and disrupting the market. And if I look at brands like Grenade that rewrote the book on, on protein bars, if I look at Innocent Smoothies, who rewrote the book on drinking smoothies, what Red Bull did to energy drinks and things like that, there are so many fantastic brands like that out there. Little Moons is, you know, prime example um, in there. We are, you know, with what we've done, we've carved out a new market now. We've grown that market and we're up week on week on week on week on week. And I do believe that we're becoming a household name um, out there. But it's all about looking at what's out there and then, then changing it. And I think you go into some of these food stores, you go into some of these um, farm shops and stuff like that, the quality of the food that's there and the innovation that's there is just so good. So, you know, doors need to be opened up to these challenger brands uh, to support them, to help them, just like Sainsbury's have done with the Future Brands program, which, which has been fantastic. What's been the biggest benefit to you from going through a program like Future Brands? What, what, what stands out to you as something that you perhaps wouldn't have been able to do on your own or on your own as quickly or as easily? It was, it was being recognized as a future brand, I think, was huge because they understood that we were fairly new to retail at the time. And we, we've been in the program for a few years now. Um, that they, that, that they got to understand that we were, we, we were new at it. They held our hand through the process, although we didn't need a great deal of hold handing because we're all old hats at selling and stuff. But um, the promotional activity that they supported us on helped get the brand name out there. Um, and in, by the same token, we also invested in our own marketing to make sure that we could draw consumers 
into Sainsbury's, which we know we've taken new consumers to that category. So everything I'm saying to you now, Julia, it's not that we're looking for new business, or, or, or which I'm not. I'm, I'm saying it from the point of other small brands that you know you put these brands into retail, whether it be convenience or whether it be the biggest stores, they have the strength to draw new consumers in. And if they do that through social media, which is inexpensive to market on, it doesn't cost a great deal at all. And if you're innovative and you've got better dance moves than I have on TikTok, you can really drive that audience. Um, but you can draw new consumers to a retailer in there by doing it. So, um, so yeah, with Sainsbury's, it was all about the promotional activity. It was about meeting other people that were actually also on the future brands and learning what had worked for them. Because I do believe there is a blueprint out there on how to launch a product successfully. I haven't come across it. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're writing it ourselves. I don't know. But, but there is a blueprint out there. It's just understanding what that blueprint is, tracking the data that then comes off of it, and then using that as a template for all other new product launches going forward. And as you say, I think pretty much all the big retailers have some form of incubator program. Now, there's obviously there's the Tesco incubator program. There's future brands at Sainsbury's. Uh, Morrison's announced their growing British brand scheme earlier um, in the year. And there are obviously other accelerator and incubator schemes that work with different um, different brands in different segments as well. So hopefully that support that is available um, is is only going to to widen as well. Yeah. In closing, I do want to take you back a little bit to the, uh, the, the the sunny side of things as well, because we've talked quite a lot about the challenges. And it, I feel like that's sort of inevitable at the moment, because it's a, it's a really challenging climate. And I thought you were quite right, actually, in calling me out and describing it as interesting times. It's not interesting times sometimes, it is just crap times. And I think it, there's a sort of uh, value in, in spelling that out occasionally as well. But what makes you feel optimistic when you look at the fact that the last 18 months people have probably pressed pause on normality now so when people talk now about you know we're returning back to normal we're not because actually that normality is gone there's a new normal coming now we just have to accept what that new normal actually is you know the, the government spoke yesterday about perhaps encouraging people working from home again now and i've still got people when i talk to banks and lawyers and stuff like that, that they're still working from home. So why I say it's sunny, why I say it's exciting, is that if you are um, agile uh, now and you've got your foot, your, your ear to the ground, um, you can actually change and you can rewrite how people buy your food. You know, we went to the big festival, I think two weeks ago now, actually, and there were some great street food vendors over there, but you could see the queues. Because people wanted to try something different. People have been through a situation that they've been suppressed for a long time, and now they're springing out. And if I look at the demands from the airlines, the railways, food service section, the restaurant section, hotels, they've all had no innovation for the last 18 months now because it's all been on board. And they're all desperately wanting everything really, really quickly. But they're pushing the boundaries. It's the first time I think I can say that People are not looking to go just 5% or 7% left field. They're actually going 15, 20% left field and looking for more innovation now. And then by the same token, the consumer now is looking for something different. I think I read somewhere that the sales of hot tubs have gone through the roof and they were in most, or well, not most houses, but a lot of houses now. And certainly in houses that you wouldn't have expected to find a hot tub. That's because people want that thing different. And, and it's the same with food. So 
that's why I think it's really interesting at the moment and really sunny that, you know, you can do all these things at the moment. If you can tie that up with this work that the supermarkets are offering and, and doing as well, then I think we can really change the way that supermarkets are. Fantastic. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show and for being my guest. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.